All right, welcome. Good to see you all today out in the world. Oh. This is Less Stupid with Thomas Yuda, a show that's completely uncut, uncensored, and unimpressed by leaders who don't care about climate change. Oh, heck yes. That's what I like to hear. Okay, and uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Tai. Um, I use he and him pronouns. Um, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, but I've spent the past four years up in college in Walla Walla, Washington. At good old Whitman. At good correct? old Whitman, yes. Right on. What's it like out there? Are you enjoying what you're studying? Uh, yeah, yeah. I got to. I just graduated, so I got to study environmental studies and politics, which was a really, really phenomenal program. Um, got to really learn some great things. I don't know. Uh, okay. Well, I'm a big environmentalist, and I love what you do. What you do, and I and I know that I invited you to come. And talk about this wonderful climate strike that is currently happening right now. Um, but just because I know that people probably judge a podcast by the first two minutes, and I want to, I want to, I want to dispel some possible inaccurate notions about environmentalists about the Green New Deal. What do you think maybe are some misconceptions people might have about either of the things I just mentioned? Um, about environmentalists, I think there's often this like misconception that environmentalists are all like white hippies. Um, right. And I think if you're like looking at who has been fighting the hardest for um, environmental changes and environmental justice, it's often been the people who are on the front lines of um, environmental injustices. So uh, a lot of indigenous communities have been fighting the hardest for Absolutely. environmental justice. And um a lot of poor and black and brown communities in right. um, and around the country that have toxic waste cited in there. Um, of course. Communities are having to fight for their lives to fight for the environment. Right. The people of Flint, Michigan, or people in the Bronx in New York that are just experiencing some of the worst air quality. Yeah. AOC having been such a major proponent of rolling out the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. What I had kind of heard about, even she might have acknowledged that it, the rollout wasn't the strongest. Maybe there wasn't enough detail in the legislation or or what do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. So the way that it was rolled out is they uh, put forward a resolution um, and it's right. just a 16 page short document. And it doesn't it doesn't say like necessarily all of the specific policies that are supposed to happen. Right. And I don't think necessarily that it should. Um, I understand either. that completely. Yeah. It's a resolution. It's not a bill. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's about like saying, what are our goals? What do we want to happen? Um, right. And, and not necessarily saying, okay, here are all of the like very intricate steps of how that's going to happen. Because, you know, when we actually write, when the legislation goes through that it's going to support the Green New Deal, it's going to be a lot longer and it's going to be a lot more complicated because there are sure. a lot of details you have to include. In terms of the rollout, I think there were some like internal memos within like people's staff that were like, haha, we're like going to get rid of all the cows or like stop cows from <laughs> farting and like stop people from going on planes. Right. And so that was something that was like kind of like staffers were joking around about and then uh, right. and then became public. And so right. then all of a sudden, a lot of uh, news media picked that up and was like, AOC wants to kill all the cows oh and just gosh. like ground so all of our absurd. plays. Yeah, absurd rhetoric about that. And, and here's one of the things that I think is really difficult to impart in people in terms of a knowledge standpoint is just that so many of the technologies we're in love with have not been around for more than a generation or two, you know, or even less than a generation. So yes, there is some environmental rhetoric around we are going to get people out of the air more. We're going to burn less fossil fuels. We're going to, 
you know, the plastic straw is the most like kind of controversial one that people kind of make fun of, but it's also incredibly legitimate. Like a plastic straw is a is a waste of plastic except for the fact that you have like one 12 ounce drink. You know what I mean? Like for the for like, the most like, part, it's I... one of the most it's one of the most silly things to 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 consume every single day yeah you know? i, I want to push back a little to. bit on plastic straw bands Please do. as a thing because i think um that's uh plastic straws are uh unnecessary for much of the population most of sure. the population but there are many disabled people who need plastic straws as right. like their way to drink and right. so fighting for like wholesale plastic straw bands is not necessarily the way to go right. for that specific thing um mm-hmm. and and also when you focus so much on that it takes away from the the reality of the majority of the pollution in the united states happening under like you know a small number of companies that are that are you know the fossil fuel industry burning immense amounts of carbon and now we're at 415 ppm and that has pretty little to do with the individual choices of poor or disabled people mm-hmm. on, the, on a day-to-day basis yeah yeah i mean yeah. i think i think there are like things that everybody can do in their individual lives that that have an impact right. but also as you're doing that recognize that like the greater imperatives to really focus on large-scale action um, right. that that makes like making environmental choices more accessible for people because um, you're not going to you're not going to get everybody to go vegan unless you right. have like the ability to uh, eliminate a lot of the food deserts that people are facing like mm. it's about creating accessibility i think um to make environmental choices more than it is trying to force everybody to make like the smartest environmental choice right that's inter- that's interesting I want to talk a little bit about the climate strike event on the tw- it was on the twentieth, right? Mm-hmm. And the way more free speech plaza, but I also I think it, I think you made a great point, and and maybe we could educate people about the term environmental racism, um, which is specific to race, but it touches on what you had mentioned before about how you know Eugene is going to be a climate refuge for one thing, and we exp- we we know that globally the you know a disproportionate amount of climate refugees are people of color, low-income people, people in island communities, people in impoverished, like, coastal communities. And I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I like, absolutely that's true. I think there's a lot of, uh, I think environmental racism, though, is something that I didn't know about for a long time. Like, it right. wasn't something that I learned about until I got to college. Um, right. But it's, I think it's really important to when we think about, like, how we're fighting, um how we're fighting for climate justice because you have to think that the impacts are already disproportionately affecting a lot of like um particularly black communities in the united right. states um it, it's right i i think it's the, just one way that 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 community of americans has been constantly subjugated relegated to the worst parts of of american cities you know if you look at urban planning putting highways interstates through cities you're almost certainly going to go through a black or brown community and you know one thing that I want people to understand is the Civil War never ended. <laughs> Something Martin Ball, my high school teacher, told me. And, and it's so real because that's just not how history works. I mean, yes, wars are easy to record in history because they have a start date and an end date. And there are a lot of deaths and everybody kind of gets all raw, raw, jingoistic about things. But the reality is that when a, when a war is officially done, a conflict still almost certainly, you know, persists. And that's really true with the Civil War in America. Mm-hmm. So it's just like 
we have this very strange idea that, you know, the civil rights movement was a period of time in the 60s and then it kind of ended. And then, well, what do we refer to, you know, with the 70s and Malcolm X and the Black Panthers? At what point do we say that that chapter of racial justice is kind of over? Well, we don't. Mm -hmm. We don't. The only people that are really trying to say kind of get over racism are generally privileged. I'm, well, not all, but they generally tend to be privileged white people or people that privileged white people like are really excited to lift up as an example. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe yeah. that's just my perception. Fox News loves to get, you know, African-American or Hispanic people to talk uh, on the, on uh, as conservatives because while those people, of course, do exist, it's just they get to easily make it look as though they deeply care about those communities by mm-hmm. kind of tokenizing and using individuals yeah. and saying my best friend is is a black person who doesn't like environmentalism. I don't know. There's tons of money to be made as the Candace Owens of the world. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. That's one of my beefs with my, my hero Kanye is, uh, you know, he really seems to love Miss Owens. And I mean... Do you like Kanye? Because I'm. This is a podcast, by the way, that's about education. Right today, it's definitely about the environment, but it's about politics. It's about news uh, and music and art. It's just I like to try to you know talk about what my guest is going to be interested in. Yeah. So the first question is, do you like Kanye? And second of all, what music do you like? Um, I like Kanye, but I haven't listened to that much Kanye, so I feel like it's a it's a failing on my part, probably. I apologize to the viewers. Right. Um, But what music do you like? uh, Lately, I've been listening. I've kind of gone all over the place. When I was growing up, I was like all like 80s rock was like the thing. And now I've been listening to a lot of like folk, but also some um, like folk, but more politically motivated. So um, some of my favorite like artists are Nako and Medicine for the People um and cool. like uh michael franti and spearhead those kind of do you groups. like citizen cope i am unfamiliar with okay. citizen cope cool i my music well, i didn't know those first is, two artists so that's exciting my music education is often like a little under underdeveloped shall i say that's perfectly fine the funny thing is the more i get old and think about for example health and public health i'm sure is probably a part of I mean, the Green New Deal, too. I mean, in in broad terms. But music is, it's an art, it's a resource, it's an activity, it's a hobby, it's a communal thing. But I also think of it in kind of a prescriptive way. Like, you know, if we can prescribe cannabis, if we can prescribe Ritalin or Zyprexa or, I don't know, freaking all sorts of different, uh, different pharmaceutical drugs, opiates. I don't know if we're going to get to a point where like MDs start prescribing Metallica, <laughs> but, <laughs> but like what I'm saying is there's a, it's a resource. It's, it's something you do consume, not mm-hmm. orally, but, but you know, through your ears and it, it puts you in a different mood. It puts you in a different mind state. So for you to say that you don't have a great musical education, sure. Maybe you're not as like obsessed with it as I am, but clearly, well, I'm assuming you're a happy person. You seem pretty chipper. Um, and so if you don't need to listen to a bunch of music every day and study up on who the new artists are in every genre, then I'd say the music industry is doing right by you. And, and, and you're doing, 
You know what I mean? You consume enough. You don't have to be obsessed with it like I am. You you have your own things that you geek out about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I th- I think that's true. I also think it's one of those things that I think it impassions so many people. That right. it's, it's like one of those like cultural uh like fabrics that you want to you want to be able to tap into. You want to be able to connect with other people by connecting through like different forms of pop culture. And I think music is a especially big part of that. No it's doubt. always like something that you know, you hear about a new artist and then you're really excited to share that with somebody. Absolutely. Um, well, well, we could talk about music and, and, and stuff for a little while because I want my podcast to also talk a lot about racial justice, which we've already done a, a little bit. And I think there are two popular culture domains where black people, but pretty much all marginalized people. But I'm talking specifically mostly about black people in terms of sport, athletics and music have been spaces where African-Americans have kind of been able to demonstrate their undeniable skill Mm -hmm. in uh, times when they didn't have rights and as much and, and, and they, and those groups still don't have enough rights in my opinion, but generally speaking, um, you know, de jure racism has transitioned more into de facto racism. And it's less that we have Jim Crow laws that segregate, but more that, well, the people who wrote the Jim Crow laws still have all the money and their sons and daughters are still running a lot of things and yeah. still kind of like using policies in a more backhanded way. But all I'm saying is that, for example, you know, when Michael Jackson broke onto MTV, that was a big deal for, you know, black history. Uh, and when Michael Jordan in the 90s became pretty much undeniably the greatest basketball player ever. And before that, it was probably either Wilt Chamberlain or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You know, just in the scale of our young country, because the United States is young, it's been fascinating and cool to watch, you know, underrepresented groups kind of take on... uh, No, you can't watch an NBA game anymore without seeing a bunch of black people, black men working together and achieving something very cool. Yeah. That I think is awesome. Yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah. And that's been I the case for obviously agree. our whole lives, but mm-hmm. it wasn't the case in the 50s, mm-hmm. you know, or in the 40s. They still had very predominantly white people and they had really short shorts and they dribbled all goofy and they couldn't dunk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or they, they, it wasn't a big part of the game until Dr. J. Yeah. God, you know what, what I said that I was going to... Uh, tailor this podcast episode to what you're interested in then i just started telling you about like <laughs> classic basketball players i and do stuff. love classic basketball players good. so good well your dad is nasty at billiards <laughs> uh, he schools me yeah 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 hmm um how do you feel like in terms of debriefing the climate strike event did it meet your expectations and maybe i'll just open the floor about how that went for you because for people who don't know you did a lot on the mic i i did yeah i uh, i did a little bit more on the mic than i was necessarily intending to but uh we we did we had like a lot of a huge coalition of people who were um helping to plan and organize and set up the the climate strike events and i was one of the folks who was helping to organize the speakers and so in between speakers and like kind of to get things moving i was trying to pitch in to let folks know what was happening. Right. Um, and so that was, uh, yeah, I thought it was a really, really cool event. It was one of the biggest, uh, like, actions that's happened in Eugene in the last, um, like, 
five or so years um at sure. least absolutely um and it was worldwide it was the largest climate action since basically 14 maybe because I went to the People's Climate March in New York City. That was pretty, as one geographic area as a standalone event, that was pretty giant. Yeah, yeah. The People's Cli- in New York City especially, the People's Climate March was enormous in right. 2014. There was somewhere around 400,000 people who were part of it. We took a bus from Minnesota. <laughs> God, the shocks on the bus were fucked. And I was right above the most rear wheel. And it was like every little bump on the road. We were jumping up and up and down. Literally, my best friend, well, not my best friend, my friend Leland at the time, and I at the time, I'm sorry that I've dirty got about this memory, it's just that <laughs> it was like so bumpy, you had to make the most of it, and people were sleeping on the floor, in the aisle, because we had so many activists from Carlton College who wanted to go to New York City and participate, it was great, but uh, I just was like, fuck it, I'm going to start bumping rap music, so I, I put on Childish Gambino, because the internet album, and I just started like air rapping because the whole place is already bumping up and down anyway it was it was awesome <laughs> it was awesome and then he got he got in with his music and it was, it was very cool <laughs> that's very pretty cool. awesome yeah but i mean it was extraordinary that i mean we, we it was like what 20 hours there we participated for like 18 hours and we got back 20 hours again it was it was a huge excursion mm-hmm. um and even then you know because I, I try to i like like our friend tiger gruber i want to i want to play contrarian a little bit Right. I want to try to have broad appeal. One of the criticisms of that event was when all the activists left New York City, they left a lot of trash. Mm-hmm. Oops. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but do, do you think that people um, generally are too quick to to criticize like little things like that in environmental movements? Because, you know, that trap New York City's full of trash anyway, mm-hmm. you know, like and and. We have such a polarized society where if you look at the source of where criticism is coming from, you can almost always see where the bias is coming from. You know, it's really rare that a lot of liberal and climate activist people will will make that point. It's mostly people who are, well, they would have criticized that event regardless of how much trash yeah, they yeah. would have found something to latch on to. Yeah, I mean, I think it's oftentimes you'll get like bad faith arguments of like, oh, they left a bunch of trash. Are these going to be the people who are on their like off days going to be picking up trash? Mm-hmm. Um, probably not. Um, and it's also like thinking then in the broad scheme of things like, yeah, you all drove 20 hours to get to an event in New York City. And there's always like these complaints about these people are driving to get to a protest. Um, And so then they're saying, well, they're wasting all this gas. But these like if you're thinking about what actually needs to make change, I was talking earlier about accessibility and creating broader accessibility. You're not going to get that if you don't have the mass action to say, like, this is what we need right now. Um, And so if people if people need to get there by car, people need to get there by car um, because we're about demanding bigger changes. Yes. Um, Yes. I love that. And I love seeing the the shifts in technology, automobiles, you know, automobile technology that are becoming a lot more friendly to people who don't want to burn a shitload of fossils. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what we do. We just we just we burn trilobites, you know, <laughs> and we just we just shoot them off into the air and assume that it'll be okay and that our great grandkids won't care. Yeah, I think they will. My bio- biology is not good enough to remember how long ago trilobites were, but ah, I think that was Cambrian explosion. <laughs> yeah, I memorized the entire geological time scale for Intro Geo at Carleton, and wow. we had an exam, 
and there was like 24 it was like holocene pleistocene uh all sorts of these these periods and eras and if you got one thing wrong you failed the quiz it was it was terrible wow but you did it well yeah he let us retake it (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah That was one of the things about it. So we both go to small liberal arts colleges, uh, or at least you graduated, right? Mm-hmm. And I did too. So we both, we both had that experience, I should say. And I loved my school. Um, I think I did experience pretty much like all of the negatives that come with, you know, a $60,000 a year, highly privileged uh, rural. So it's it tends to be very not diverse. Uh, in terms of the town and the school, uh, you have some of those kind of like performative, privileged 19-year-old social justice leftists who, um, for example, they want to stand up for their marginalized friends. And they're, they're very sincere about it. But one of the things that's tough is that people in large groups make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, people in large groups will, I don't know, like call-out culture can be frustrating because because – if you have a small school, for example, like we went to, how many, how big is Whitman? It was like 1,500, 1,600, somewhere in that range. Right. Yeah. And in Walla Walla. And mine was 2,000 students in Northfield, Minnesota. Both quite small and claustrophobic maybe by year three or four is kind of how I felt. Um, hmm. I kind of lost exactly what my question was. But, but um, I just think that one of the things that well-educated people, let's say, make the mistake of doing sometimes is not trying to be more accessible and reach out more to let's say like people who voted for Trump there are educated Trump voters no doubt but uh, but but like when you get into this echo chamber and you know you, you should have conversations about intersectionality but you know sometimes you bring up a word like that and if you just assume everybody knows it and you put it out on you know, social media, I think one of the ways that this, this polarization has kind of continued to manifest is that it's harder, like algorithms make it harder for you to have, to continually have real friendships and connections with people that you have serious disagreements with politically. Mm -hmm. Facebook knows and it, and it assigns like on a scale of five, I think very liberal, moderately liberal, moderate, moderately conservative or very conservative. I think it told me I'm very liberal. I didn't like that. <laughs> I just like, you know, I don't, maybe I just don't like to be labeled because it comes with so much baggage. Yeah. Um, Cause like I'm, I'm pretty pro gun rights. I'm pretty pro free speech and, you know, a podcast is a kind of that kind of a format or like I'm a, I'm a hip hop artist. So I don't like, I don't like people telling other people what they can't say. That's why I like having an uncut uncensored podcast is I like, Saying you can say anything, sure, there are consequences for what you say, but I'll put it out. Like let's say you said you said a slur right now. Well, depending on what the slur was, I would probably just say, "Hey, man, that was a ridiculous thing to say. I don't want you to say that again." And then we talk about it. Maybe I don't think I want to censor what you said, though. I don't think I want to erase that you said it. So when I see this liberal versus conservative thing, and part of it. Part of it, too, is I'm running for a nonpartisan office. Mayor of Eugene represents all of Eugene, and it's, it doesn't even show if you're D or R on the ballot. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, I worry about, I worry about that. Do you find that you have close friendships with people who 
literally are like, I think climate change doesn't matter? Because there's a lot of people like that. I, I don't think so. And I th- I think one of the reasons that I feel like that's the case, um, I, I, I have friends who will ignore kind of activism or like don't want to engage right. in in a lot of like conversations about that kind of thing. Um, but of people my own age, I don't really have any um, friends who are climate deniers per se. Um, there was one or two people at my, in my college who I, who I was friends with um, and who I could engage in conversation. Um, but one of the things is that I think like, like climate caring about climate change often served to me as a litmus test for how people like care about other people. Sure. Um, and, uh, and I think there's, there's like many degrees of that, mm. but I think there are, there are like things where you can see um, where some people are like not being compassionate towards other people. And that's, that's something that like sort of grinds at me. Um, that said, I think that there's like um, when you, when you were talking about like being uh, being kind of frustrated with call out culture or cancel culture, mm-hmm. um I think something there that's really interesting. Um, I've I've talked to some people, um, or I had a friend at school um, who talked a lot about like call in culture, and it's basically yeah, like, I like and, that. And it's basically like it's that trying to it's say more about a tone and approach because you can have the same principles, mm-hmm. but it's about tone and approach and humanity. Yeah, I think that when you come from a place of love, it's it's palpable, it's susceptible. Social media takes away from that when you leave a comment and nobody knows what your tone is. And a lot of the actual engagement with Facebook nowadays, since people in our generation use Instagram and Snapchat a lot, you know, it's it's that I see is about politics, probably just because that's the kind of stuff I engage with. So it shows me more of that. Mm-hmm. But you, you just, you, you know, CNN, New York Times, KVAL, KMTR, Register Guard, Oregonian, Oregon Live. These people have these pages. They post an article. And you immediately know that it's just going to be a bloodbath in the comments. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's maybe because that tone isn't there. So I like what you said about call in. It's because call out, unfortunately, has the effect of marginalizing people, let's say, on a small college campus. Uh, you know, we, we basically, <laughs> there was a local news article in Minnesota about my college. And the, the it was kind of a clickbaity headline, but it was, what happened to the Carleton College Republicans? Mm-hmm. Uh, because we just, they didn't maintain enough membership. So they just kind of faded away um, because it's its known as such a progressive space. But but 18 to 22 year olds need to, let's say, here's, here's, a, here's a better articulation of my point. 18 to 20 year olds are children. <laughs> I was, you were. Mm-hmm. You still kind of are, and I, <laughs> I still kind of am too, but a little less. I'm 25. Children <laughs> need to be able to thoroughly engage with arguments that they hate. You know? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of arguments, not people, but arguments, perspectives, philosophies, policies that I hate. Redlining. Uh, you know, bailing out wall street there are there are things that i hate but you have to be able to like study and have the intellectual discipline to be able to factually take down those kinds of arguments because that because i think 
if you don't you're gonna you you can end up looking dumb in front of somebody who is conservative and has a well-researched body of knowledge one example i'll point to people might not like is ben shapiro so ben shapiro says a bunch of things i hate he has a bunch of crappy takes on music and politics and <laughs> <Is it's>, oh <laughs> i think i know what you're talking about yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. of his music takes yeah, he just, he just, <laughs> yeah he likes to talk like this and he says it's really fast just to make it sound like he's quick like, like he really knows what he's talking about he doesn't <laughs> and i like doing impressions i'm not always good at it um but he has but he resonates and something that my my fellow liberal friends often fail to acknowledge even in one-on-one conversations is i literally think that if you're too extreme as a leftist in your rhetoric maybe not in your principles but in your rhetoric and the way you conduct yourself around people you push moderates to the right I think people do that. I don't think that happened at the climate march. I think it was a celebration. I think it was about, you know, what are we going to do for our children? We had a lot of clever signs that were a lot of fun. And I'm not pointing to a lot of examples, but some but I just genuinely really do feel like if you look statistically at the Obama coalition from 2008 and 2012 from when he defeated McCain and Romney, many of those people in Obama's second term got tired of what they perceived as race war or whatever. Um, And then they voted for Trump because Trump got a lot of Obama voters. And that's a tough, that's a tough fact to reckon with Um, because the funny thing is, even as I criticize the state, the, the, the status quo, not Obama, the, the state of people doing that, in response to the, to Obama and his cabinet and his agenda, Obama was actually like pretty conservative, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, so that's the that's the issue. It's like to refute myself, you might as well just go hard on the left because the right is going hard, and you know, like, uh, like wh- why why temper your passion if you really want to get carbon out of the air, you know, or if you really want to get uh, you know, Me Too movement to be prominent. You really want to get uh, racial justice for indigenous Americans and Latinx people and African-American people. Like, we have to fight hard. But I don't know about how we go forward in a way that specifically brings in rural, working class and poor, predominantly white, uh, let's say fundamentalist religious people those people need to be on board with climate change too. Mm-hmm. It's tricky. It's yeah. Tricky. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, you, you bring up some like really interesting points, I think in terms of like, like why, why would people choose to vote for Trump? And, and like, is it worth it to like take extreme tactics in order to bring people, bring people in? Um, right. And I think like one of the things I think back to is like the tea party movement was one of the most effective political movements um, yeah, 2010 was a big red year. Yeah, and and it came from people just like pushing the agenda on one side. Yep. And uh and and Occupy Wall Street probably not as a politically effective. Mm-hmm. That kind of followed up around 2011, I would say, as a res- yeah. uh, not a direct response, but you know, similar grassroots energy. Yeah, I think I mean, and I think there's a lot of reasons that the Occupy Wall Street movement like struggled, and I think one of the major ones was that they didn't have anything like any of their like clear goals in mind so well, even they the- purposely eschewed the idea of central leadership mm-hmm. they did mic checks 
someone who wanted to yeah to, to talk, they would say mic check. Everybody else would repeat mic check, and they would do. Sorry, it was called human mic, uh-huh. where you know, do we want to go and camp out over there? Do we want to go and camp out over there, or do we want you know just like very cool, completely not using real microphones like you and I are using ways to human beings to amplify ideas and sound. Mm-hmm. It was cool, but you're right. Um, it was clearly about income inequality. You could probably, and historians, let's say Bernie Sanders gets elected president, historians will probably say that wouldn't have happened without Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, I mean, I think Occupy Wall Street. We are the ninety-nine percent. A lot of people, and it like it had a it had a moral claim to bring in the working yes. class. Yes, but it didn't necessarily. And the poor. Yeah, and yeah, and the poor absolutely. Um, and I think that one. It, it, the one thing that I think it struggled with was it talked a lot like people were talking a lot about income inequality and I think some really good things came out of that I think a lot of homeless activism has come out of uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement and I think like uh, certain uh, policies like talking about wealth taxes um, wouldn't probably have happened without like Occupy Wall Street movements really um, really kind of identifying like a us and them um, sort of thing um, but I think it also struggled because there wasn't necessarily like something big that they were moving towards and um, bringing right. in that many people like democracy and the tea is party super was, messy. The Tea Party was mostly about having less taxes. Yeah. Which a lot of that's an easy thing to accomplish kind of in, in a way. You know, it's a very clear goal. And there are a lot of people who politicians who that's a pretty easy sell. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that's that's challenging about being on the left like is that people don't like taxes <laughs> so, <laughs> and so government needs revenue to function um and we like the roads we like our well we don't not everybody likes the schools not everybody likes the police but people generally like emergency services people generally like having a library you know things that cost money and then the entirety of let's talk a little about economics broadly like economic inequality and where the hell we're going to morally choose to go with our economy. Mm-hmm. Let, because especially with Green New Deal, it's inspired directly by FDR, my favorite president. I'm a Japanese American who thinks FDR is the best president <laughs> of all time. Isn't that wild? That's how you know I have neutrality. I have objectivity. He was a great president. Served for 12 years. I think presidents should be able to serve longer than eight years, by the way. But with Green New Deal, it's about jobs. Mm-hmm. It's not just about having a, a green planet. Everybody yeah. wants to have the trees stick around and, you know, not have smog in L.A. and Houston. But fundamentally, it's about getting away from a transportation economy, from a food industry that's just laid to waste the state of uh, the climate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's about restructuring our entire economy and basically the way we live. Um, and I think it the what it does is it pays really close attention to who's being hurt the most in the current economy. Right. Um, and hopefully we can work to, to change that. One of the, I think biggest things that people lose out on when we think about climate change and we, when we talk about um, like climate science and like parts per million is we lose out on the fact sometimes that climate change uh, impacts so many other social problems. Like when we're talking about, um, how could it not? Yeah. We're in it right now. <laughs> yeah. My would... hands are flapping around in some clean Eugene air. Yeah. You think when I get off the fucking plane at JFK, 
I breathe in and go, ah, yeah. tasty, delicious air of New York. It's <laughs> gross. I don't mean to say people who are living there are gross, because it's but literally like breathing after a couple of weeks was different. Yeah, it wasn't that I was in pain, but there was like a discomfort in my chest every time I go back there. And mm-hmm. then you adjust and acclimate to it. And I spent a lot of time in the middle of Central Park, but uh, walking around the pond, which is gorgeous. Um, but you are so right. The climate affects every single other issue. Yeah. In ways that some issues actually c- kind of don't. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think one of the big things is like thinking about how do we achieve climate justice with and and sometimes that means not necessarily like focusing directly on climate change when we talk about issues um one of the biggest things is like when i think about uh like homelessness or uh, migrant justice um those aren't necessarily concerns that are going like they are deeply deeply like homeless people are deeply impacted by um climate change and uh and migrants like there's been tons of this is a record year for climate refugees right um and but like you're you're not going to be able to solve those problems just by reducing the parts per million right. um, we're going to have to we're going to have to figure out better ways to house people we're going to have to improve housing to have better insulation to have mm. um you know less reliance on fossil fuels within sure. our housing um and then we're going to have to reform or like reform our immigration system um to basically like we're gonna have to allow a lot more climate refugees in or else we're gonna be literally killing people um well we are literally killing people right but we will be literally killing more people (laughs) well one thing i love about politics i'm obsessed with politics it's like my sports Mm -hmm. you know i watch it and i check on you know, my YouTube is mostly just Andrew Yang videos at this point, what it recommends to me, <laughs> but also generally like, you know, all sorts of all sorts of political networks and channels. And I kind of want to become one, frankly, less stupid is a show. It's a podcast. But here we are on YouTube. Hi, YouTuber people. Hello, YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Subscribe something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. The fuck. I don't want to be that corny yet. Um, <laughs> never... <laughs> yeah, this is the first episode. Come on. We can't oh, get yeah, that crazy. Obviously, first episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're here. <laughs> Right. But it's about leadership. And so politics, the word politics, what are you referring to? Pretty much just like who can be popular in a large group of people. And that has a lot of, you know, when are we going to have another president who visibly has a disability? Not going to probably not going to be for a while, possibly, because because we care so much about appearance Mm -hmm. and about this outdated rah-rah strongman notion of strength. Yeah. That if a person, even though he was the greatest president, was in was uh, in a wheelchair. I'm not sure the best way to say that because a lot of people don't like the phrase wheelchair bound, but who used a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would probably know best because I don't have anyone in my family, my direct family who, who uses a wheelchair. Yeah, wheelchair user is a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, kind of lost my train of thought. There's a bug on the ground. But leadership is so important. Any society of any of any scale. Right now, we are a two-person group. We're a two-person society, you could even say. Sorry, dude. I'm the leader. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, we have to have a leader. Uh, and so, do you, fi- do you think... Let's just talk politics. Like, do, is anybody um, resonating with you enough where you could say, you know, I want that person to take on 45? Um, I mean, yeah. I, I think there are people who are resonating with me. I think 
right now Bernie Sanders is has the strongest climate plan. He's got the strongest healthcare plan. Um, Two point five billion trillion he proposed for housing. Yeah, um, and and it's it's expensive. It's it's but it's Absolutely. recognizing that like we're gonna have to pay in order to uh, be able to change a lot of a lot of inequities in our society, right. um, and that. Um, and I think another big thing that I really like about Bernie and something something that I've always been like nervous about with politics is I'm always afraid of like lionizing or celebrating leaders too of much. Of course. Because I think I think you have to be able History to criticize does that way too much. Yeah, yeah. It's so much about singular figures instead of communal movements. Yeah, and and one of the things that I think Bernie has done really well um is Focusing on building a movement, um, yeah, and and trying Even after to... he lost our revolution is basically a group that he he passed on his campaign infrastructure and made it into a progressive, you know, group that supports other progressive candidates. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, and I think also like um, something that I think has been really powerful, like he's used his campaign like infrastructure to support other. Um, other like uh justice initiatives like one of the big ones was uh when there were ice raids going on he absolutely uh, he was sending out emails through um about that and trying to help people with that um and I, and so one of the things is that like i support bernie sanders but i support bernie sanders more for the movement that bernie sanders is trying to build than i do for supporting bernie sanders as an individual person mm. um, because I think we have to be able to criticize um, our leaders. And I think one of the things yeah. is when we like one of the big things about like when Trump got elected is right. that people, um, people feel the need. A lot of Trump supporters feel the need to def- just defend anything that Trump does. Um, yeah. And so, and so it's just like yeah. building this aura around yeah. a person where they become untouchable, where nothing yeah. they do becomes criticizable. And I think that's just like, really dangerous terrible yeah yeah um and so like i i want a candidate who i can support and who i think think fights for me but i also want a candidate who i think that i can criticize and i think will do better um it just what what i am frustrated about is the republican party seeming to never bring a smart person all the way through (laughs) to the end of the primary you know Mm -hmm. romney was was reasonably intelligent but you know, I mean, he was terrible. He was terrible, and Obama was just better. Um, but in terms of who they elect, George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, not a particularly smart guy, in my opinion. Some people think he's all savvy. I think he got lucky. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, if you really study, it's so it's so like homeroom classroom, like middle school classroom. Like if you really look at like politics on a big scale, you know. Reagan is just this Hollywood guy. Yeah. You know, this Hollywood cowboy guy who marches in there and needs like a more established conservative guy with glasses to like fill out his ticket. Then he he wins and then he passes on the presidency with his ridiculously terrible uh, policies that are well, that are quite popular. You know, mm-hmm. Oregon voted for Reagan. Yeah. Oregon's uh, Reagan, I think, is the last presidential candidate that won. And I think it was in 84 when he was immensely popular in time for his rec- uh, reelection. And then you got. Uh, H.W. who was who was a nerd, mm-hmm. uh, who was kind of who was kind of a dweeb, not a nerd, but a dweeb. <laughs> I don't mean to be, I mean that lovingly because I'm a nerd and a dweeb, right? Um, and he said, "Read my lips, no new taxes." And he was just feckless. He was feckless. So you, then you get this this fat bully uh, who was Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that because he's a friendly guy, but 
it's the economy, stupid. You know, mm-hmm. that's that was his whole thing was just being brash. I mean, being it, a populist. He, was, he was folksy and he was he like appealed to a lot of people because they saw like he was he was the cool guy in the room. He was yeah. the guy everybody wanted to be friends with, mm-hmm. even if he didn't necessarily have the best policies. Um, <laughs> right. And he was a Southern Democrat. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter and and yeah, and him Southern Democrats. I don't think the Democratic Party likes to vote for New Yorkers like Hillary. I mean, well, she's not really, you know, she's kind of, by the time she ran for president, she was just, she was too steeped in the game, dog. Mm -hmm. Like, the Democrats need to realize, Pete Buttigieg actually said this pretty accurately, is they never, Democrats never win with the most established candidate coming Mm -hmm. out of the gate. Joe Biden is not going to be the nominee. I think that's almost certain. I would hope so. Yeah, (laughs) because it's all about name recognition. It's immensely early in the race right now, you Mm -hmm. know, it's. And so, you know, Obama freaking eked past Hillary around April of 2008. And we're in September now. And Warren is already number one in a, at least one poll that I saw. Mm-hmm. So, in um, Iowa, usually. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, I think there are a lot of good leaders. Um, hmm. But you said something about how there are a lot of Trump voters, sadly, who will defend him no matter what. Mm-hmm. It's a real problem. One thing that will be a problem for a while unless we can all kind of find a way to agree on how to fix it is that you know, media, what, what, what do I mean by media being a problem? I think the corporate profit motives on media in media, you know, it sucks to me that the, the groups, the people who dispense information, it's their job to dispense information not noodle bowls like I want to do, not, not, uh, I don't know, entertainment like athletes and musicians do, but dispensing information, journalists, Mm -hmm. the people with the, with the most authority and credibility in our communities are like these freaking outsiders who are just communications majors from Tennessee and they come to work at KVAL or KPR or whatever, you know, and, and they have extremely, non-Eugene based narratives that they're pushing you know gatehouse media owns register guard for example mm-hmm. they just I mean they're the thing with those sources of information is that you can get good information from them and uh, many a times they're doing their best but you have to I mean I'll, I sound like a social studies teacher you have to be able to evaluate your source and yeah. not use anything as the only source even Facebook which is an aggregator you know like social media platforms aggregate I could see conservative-leaning sources and liberal-leaning sources in there. But still, ultimately, I'm just using Facebook. And Facebook, the one of the challenges of that, Instagram more so, is brevity. You know, like, you, unless you just you read a scholarly, you, you tap a link that someone shares for a scholarly JSTOR article of 40 mm-hmm. pages, you are, you're almost never getting good information. InfoWars is, is the name of... What's his name? That idiot. I'm not even gonna say his name. I know his name. You know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, yeah. And they're like, turning the frogs and gay. Like, right, they're turning the frogs gay. <laughs> I got news for you. It's natural to be gay. The frogs <laughs> have been gay since they were tadpoles. <laughs> fucking in the ponds. And so my p- <laughs> Where's my point? I'm becoming such a podcast host. Part of why I sh- called the show less stupid is because podcasts are a stupid medium, dude. Why is that? Okay, if you listen to like a really produced podcast where it's more like a radio play or like an audio kind of like like a radio lab kind of thing, mm-hmm. 
Sure, that's fine. That's kind of legitimate. But the problem with what you and I are doing is this takes no effort, you know? And we have credibility because we're talking into microphones and we're on a screen. Yeah. And that's the reality of what the Joe Rogan experience, for example, is. Uh huh. And many podcasts by talking heads is are. It's the simple it's I could say anything I want and there isn't an expectation for me to cite my source. So, you know, I could tell you that, you know, Lane County suicides are up four hundred percent since two thousand. And the reality is they're up about eighty percent. But that to me is troubling because all I'm saying is information is hard to agree on that's for sure um and bringing it back to presidential politics knowing that when obama gets elected fox news is going to spend their entirety of their time conflating everything he does as some kind of like you know radical far left marxist you know kenyan fucking whatever um and then when trump gets elected the sad part about his whole fake news bs is that he's not incorrect about some things There are many media sources that are hyper-focused on his flaws and don't do a good enough job of covering the things he does that I think are actually good. Mm -hmm. Um, So here's a question, and it's a big question, and I'll try to set it up in a way that isn't a giant ramble, which is a challenge for me. Um, Do you think, and it's one of these two things, that we're so divided now and it would be great to go back to a time maybe in the late 90s, in, I don't know, the 80s, maybe even during 2003 when we were all fairly united about the stupid Iraq war. You know, even people like, even a lot of Democrats, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden voting for it. Do you think <laughs> that there is an ideal time we could go back to a little bit and say, you know, man, it was better in 2007. It was better than in 2000, in 1990. Seven or eight, when we were most focused on Lewinsky, you know, being a big national political scandal, you know, and Bill Clinton's extramarital affair. Do you think that we should, we could learn from those times when we were more united as a country? Or the second option is all that unity was an artificial kind of made up thing. Like the 50s, the white picket fence, the two and a half children is a manufactured media fabricated image for people to aspire to because Americans like to inspire to individualism and success of their own people, you know, kind of as an identity from the very beginning, from the revolutionaries. Is the idea that we were more united before kind of a fabrication? Because, for example, the people left out of that narrative are like (coughs) everybody who wasn't a wealthy, white, able-bodied, you know, uh, cisgendered male, generally Mm -hmm. speaking. What do you think about that? Is it is it is it that we were united before or that was kind of made up? Um okay. I think Oh, that's a tough one. Um I think so you're asking like can we like is 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 there a possibility that like there is a unity that's like a true unity rather than like some like image that we're trying to portray on society and i think we can like learn things from the past in times of unity like one of the things about the iraq war like and that unity per se even though there were definitely a lot of people who came out against the iraq war i remember my the very first oh yeah my dad and i were never for it (laughs) yeah yeah i think and i think there were a lot of people but but one of those things is like you have to build a common enemy um it's like it's hard to unite people right um when you 
when you don't have like a common thing you're fighting against like um and so that's like you know you kind of have to create like an in group and an out group and the out group right can be like something that's not even human like one of the things is i I think about like what how would we get the most unity and it's like independence day or something like that like a (laughs) alien invasion would would probably lead to human unity don't talk about blowing up the white house on my podcast ty i i i'm probably on too many lists already (laughs) (laughs) somehow i want to ask you about borders man okay that's a big that word could be interpreted in a lot of ways I think there's a lot of BS rhetoric on uh, extreme right kind of media channels. The Democrats are for open borders. Nobody's for open borders in the uh, in the mainstream political sphere. It's not an electable position to have. Yeah. So nobody's for open borders. People have a different idea on what border security looks like, how it should be funded, what infrastructure and mechanisms are in place, whether we need a giant wall. In places where there's already a fucking river, for example, like it's just, um, you know, in the U.S. we don't have many because our state borders are pretty, pretty um, ineffectual. You know, they just kind of determine where you pay taxes and stuff, but anybody can freely travel. Whereas if you go to the Israeli-Palestinian region of the world or you go to Africa where so much of those states that. Democratic Republic of the Congo, and Senegal, and Cameroon, and you go all the way down, South Africa, Lesotho, and so much of that was constructed out of conquest. One of the things I see from from inv- generally hippies, let's say, and I kind of consider you a hippie, I kind of consider your whole family to be kind of hippie, and it's beautiful and I love it, is that this idea of like oh let's get away let's get rid of borders you know like every you know no human no human is illegal on stolen land i agree with that but do you do you believe in a world where in in the entirety of the world eventually we'll we will allow for free open travel of people like everywhere i i think we should right Um, i thought you were gonna say that yeah see i don't so So that so like i want to go into this like a little bit because like I guess the big question is what is the point of borders? Like of course. why why do we have like these these lines? Um and it's it's to define who we are and who who we aren't, right? Mm-hmm. Um and I think well also also elements of safety potentially, but but if we look at what the US Mexico border does, for example, which I think is like the the border that we all focus on, um the US Mexico border is not built for U.S. safety by any means. The the sure. um, the security apparatus that's been built up since uh, really like 1960s, but even more so, especially 1990s. Um, that's that's built to destabilize people. It's right. it's built to like really hurt. I think um, like if we if we look at the fact that we hyper militarized a lot of oh that's fine. Um, I'm gonna see if that's still rolling too. Okay. Um, Go on. Yeah. So I think. Uh, I, I think there's like a lot of changes that need to be made um, before like I like I personally see as an end the ability to move freely because I think restricting the ability to move freely. I'm doing this again. No, no, I, I, I try not to touch it, but go on. Just go on. Gotcha. It's not a good stand. <laughs> um, I, like I think the ability to move freely and enables people to have more safety in where they're at and what they do. Um, so, 
uh, when I think about like what the point of the border is, if we're talking about safety, I think you there's very easy ways to regulate entry and exit that regulates like dangerous things um, rather than trying to regulate like um, like people. People. Yeah. And so if we're thinking about borders, I think. Like, right. People with nothing dangerous on them. Mm-hmm. They're just brown people. Like, yeah. 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 Um, and so like, I don't know. When I think about, like, the U.S.-Mexico border, like, so much of the U.S.-Mexico border has been constructed in the last 30 years. Right. Um, it's not It's not this, like, long-term problem that a lot of people think about. It's, like, the, like, Mexican migration was basically, like, unlimited um, and until the 50s, and it was de facto unlimited until, like, the 80s. Mm. Um, people people would migrate back and forth every day across the border. Um, right. And and now that we've restricted it, we've actually, like, caused more um, migration, but unsafe migration, mm. um, because people are forced to travel, and they don't have the ability to move back, and so then they're left separated from their family for a period of time. Um, or they're forced to travel through the desert where we're killing people because we decide to block off the entrances that are safe. Um, so right. oh, I, I'm a big uh, nerd about Israel and Palestine, and, and one of the things that's so brutal there, and in generally speak, okay, I'm for human rights across the board, right? And Hamas has done things that, are, that I don't agree with, but I generally am, I believe in Palestinian liberation. And so... The checkpoints, being able to, you know, having to go through these giant processes to just get through to where you work from where you live every single day. It's a way that the state of Israel just, you know, oppresses uh, and... I guess the word I'm really looking for is it's take it takes money out of people's pockets too on the most at the most practical level. Let's say you don't know anything about this. Well, just imagine if you living in because I, I live in the county. We're in Lane County. We're technically not in the city of Eugene, mm-hmm. even though this house has a Eugene, Oregon address. Think about if I had to like fucking take my car to a toll booth and sit there for 45 minutes uh at the corner of of hilliard and river road every day Mm -hmm. to get to downtown eugene to do work yeah ultimately there's the guise of it being about i guess it's not a totally guise i i'm not informed enough to really talk about it but it's it purports to be about safety and it's much more about control and about protection of yes these borders protect who we are as a people as an identity so i get what you're saying um my concern is just that everybody, everybody agrees in some form of border or boundary. It's just a matter of kind of where you draw that line because my garage door is open right now so leafy green can shine on you. But if it were closed, everybody would get the message that the freaking garage door is closed. And if it were open all the time, it would create a different sense of what kind of privacy I have in the house. Mm-hmm. So, you know... I think governance and good governance is about realizing scale and realizing that if you want to communicate to a lot of people, and I know this as an educator, about you know a, a border, a national political border, maybe you can use a metaphor that's smaller because because like counties don't exist, states don't exist, they just kind of are decided upon, 
And I think that if you study kind of the way that things scale outward, most national political issues that we deal with at the federal level, you can see at the state level. Like Oregon has a House of Representatives and a, and a Senate, you know, and then the Lane County Board of Commissioners. You know, you could see the corruption that happens there based on, you know, who, which commissioners from the wealthier part of the county and which commissioner is not. And so that's why I just wish there was a greater connect for more people, con- connection between the national issues that we see on national news and get attention and the fact that they're very, very... Um, reflected in and changeable within your local community obviously i'm running for mayor so i want people to support me because i'm I'm a climate activist to a degree and i believe that education mental health climate housing and art could all be better uh improved by a, by a more responsive eugene government um yeah that was a ramble i, I don't remember i'm just gonna shut up and let you say stuff i don't even know where to go cool um, Well, we'll end soon anyway. Um, But I always like to ask people, what is one way that you think, and this could be, you can interpret this any way you want, that we could all be less stupid? Mm. Actionable. Actionable. Um, Okay. I think there's, okay, I think there's a couple things. um, And I... I know you said one, but I might I might take a couple. One of them is uh, I always like to. I think one of the biggest questions that we need to ask in our society is um, always for who. Um, so whenever any action like is taken, um, ask the question for who is this or like who is this totally. for? Um, when we because every every policy that gets changed on a federal level or on a local level or any like many of our uh like companies they're they're taking actions for somebody it's there's a beneficiary and we have to we have to ask the question who who is this for um and so i think that relates to climate change i think that relates to immigration policy i think that relates to um like all like all kinds of different um social issues um, and so I think that's a really something that like I've tried to do a little bit more is just and constant and I keep asking that question um, like three or four times like um, and, like ask the who and why questions and go for go for depth because um, we were we were talking earlier that. about um, you, were, you were talking about like Facebook and Instagram it looks like being centering brevity and you know you're not going to go and look for something longer um, sure. and I think we it's really hard I just think on a rhythmic bodily level. We are so conditioned now to evaluate really quickly from the first couple of words or our first glance at an image, whether it's worth our time. Mm-hmm. And that's troubling because the things that are really worth your time, you you can't get a sense of in the first five seconds. Yeah. Or 10 seconds. Yeah. And then I think the one other thing that I have been trying to emphasize lately is in terms of the climate strikes and climate action, um, Greta Thunberg... Um, I'm so glad you brought her up. Yeah. Is she 16? She's 16. She's a remarkably good speaker. She's a phenomenal speaker and she's incredible. And I also want to emphasize that she is becoming, she's been highlighted for particular reasons. There have been people who fought for a long time, many, many youth activists who fought for a long time in black and brown and indigenous communities. Or like David Hogg from the 
Parkland thing. Yeah, it's, it's it's often easy to to see the privileged identities taking hold. And then you got someone like Emma Gonzalez, who you maybe I don't know what you're referring to specifically, but she is more just like just a hellraiser who is like you're fuck you, you're gonna respect me no matter what. Mm-hmm. But Greta Thunberg is more like I can see the ways that you know her privileges and her identities and her education. Uh, all contribute to this massive amount of support for her and what she did because she spoke articulately for four minutes mm-hmm. when the people that really do the hard work every day or have the most at stake for, you know, God, what was the phrase she kept using? It was a, it was a great phrase. It was, it was, it was like, how dare you? It was, how dare yeah, you? How dare you? Yeah. You know? Yes. How dare they do that? But also you're not going to be as affected by it as a 16 year old, person that you are compared to many many other people yeah and and i think so one of the things is i i don't think that means that is in any way a dig on her of Um, course and i think she's done absolutely incredible work in using her privilege to speak truth to power um but i also think that like highlighting activists um who've been doing a lot of work um in the united states or in many places um one of the things i i was thinking about in terms of like the reason she got famous was because of her school strike for climate out over in Sweden. Um, and I, um, in the last year I worked with a community in Ecuador that was doing mining resistance. Um, and children, um, like whole families were quitting all of their work, um, to join a blockade to block, um, uh, a mining company from basically coming into their community and they were fighting for wow. climate justice. Um, and they like were all, they, they had a five month long strike where they were co- like in constant blockade of this mine and half of their community worked in the mine. Um, so this was like devastating to the community, but they needed to fight for it. Um, mm-hmm. but the publicity that that got was a mere fraction of what, uh, of what, like somebody who has a lot more privilege. Gets. Yeah, I didn't hear anything about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so uh, I think one of the things is just like asking or like looking into other activists and other people who've done a lot of really good work. Um, so like a, a couple that I think are worth highlighting um, are yes, please. Uh, the like, um, this is Zero Hour as a youth movement um, that's, um, and their executive director, Jamie Margolin, has done incredible work and, uh, and also uh, other people in the youth climate uh, coalition is would be like people um, like Isra Hersey, who uh, is also has a lot of privilege because she's Ilhan Omar's daughter ah. um, and uh, but has like has done really, really powerful work um, in this um, realm. And then uh, like a lo- there are a lot of people um who are some other folks that I'm thinking of? Jerome Foster has done good stuff. Um, right. I'm trying to. I'm. I'm. There are a lot of people. I think one of the things is also that I don't know a lot of these names still. Like, and a lot of the people who've done really um, great work because I think they're behind the scenes in a lot of cases. Very much um, so. And so, people like, like my wonderful ex-girlfriend, uh, who has been involved with the Sunrise Movement for many, many months. And yeah, she just doesn't like, she's not an attention seeking person at all. I'm an immensely attention seeking person. (laughs) I like to be in the limelight. I like to be, 
uh, talked about, whether it's even, well, mostly if it's good. But, you know, <laughs> you know, I like to put myself out there. I, it's hard for me to live in a way where I do not do that. But a lot of great, great, great activists are not recognized in their own time because mm-hmm. of the fact that they are not doing it for themselves. If they were, nobody would think they're great activists. You know, yeah. that's typically politicians. Politicians can be great activists. But they have to be self-aggrandizing enough, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to wrap up soon. But um, I love Ilhan Omar. I love the squad. Ayanna Presley from Massachusetts, Rashida Tlaib from Michigan, of course, Omar from Minnesota, and AOC Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from the good old Bronx or Queens. I don't remember. Because her district encomp- encompasses both. She she wouldn't take a meeting with me when I was in New York. It was a bummer. Uh, <laughs> you know, you talked on Talks with Tiger by Tiger Gruber. Check it out. Uh, a little bit about populism. No, 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 no. I'm getting mixed up Sam. with Sam. Sam, sorry, sorry. He talked a lot about populism. Um, Sam Pettit. And uh, just just the way human beings are, we are so conditioned to like what's new. And, you know, as I, as I settle on exactly what race I'm running, because it's kind of got mixed up a little bit, I'll be perfectly honest with you. There's a gentleman who's running for mayor. I was very excited to discover he was running for mayor based on the things he was running for and who he was and what I thought he could do. Then I talked to him for an hour on this show. And what I realized was that he's a really intelligent person who I'm not convinced that he's going to win because of his work ethic and his approach and whether he can really build the coalition he wants to. And so I cannot, as a person who wants to have a better mayor in Eugene, I can't endorse him anymore unless he can prove to me that he's really, really going to win. Um, And so I'm probably going to jump back into that race instead of, Lane County Commissioner. Um, and being an outsider only happens once in a, in a, in a way. And so that's why um, I'm drafting a plan to win the mayoral race that is a it's a month-by-month plan. And um, it's just go big or go home. Because, like, I just think that, for example, Bernie Sanders was the talk of the town in 2015. You know, he'd been a fantastic national politician since the 70s or 80s and the mayor of Burlington, Vermont before that, doing good work. But now he can't gather as much momentum because of the fact that he's old news and he's been subject to so much criticism. He still has tons of momentum and loyal support. Also, I think because a lot of people have adopted a lot of what he stood for yeah. in 2015. Yes. Um, Although that said, no one has adopted that to the extent that he still represents uh, a lot of progressive policies. Absolutely. Do you think he's who you would most support right now? Uh, yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. I, I, yeah, I him, Yang, or Warren, any of those three, they would, they will beat Trump. I think if they're nominated, especially if they can, if we can thin that out by March or April, that would be ideal. Get lots of time to everybody. Get behind everybody who cares about not having a xenophobic lying pathologically uh narcissistic um president of the united states because none of those three people exhibit those traits so that's cool um yeah i think that's about it 
Thanks for coming on. I Thanks would love for to. Having I, me. Yeah, and I would love. Um, how can people get involved with either the Green New Deal or climb the Sunrise Movement? Yeah. So, uh, the Sunrise Movement is a national movement. So, if you're watching from Eugene, um, the Sunrise Movement Eugene will have a meeting on October eighth, um, and that location is still to be determined. Cool. So uh, you can, but you can check out Sunrise Movement or Sunrise Eugene on Facebook um, or on Instagram. Um, and we'll be like posting more information and we're doing a lot more work on, especially the local level, trying to, um, get folks to endorse a local green new deal and, and really work on, on, um, because it's going to be different in every community and we want to make sure we are doing what's right for our community. So I love it. And if you don't know much about the mechanics of the, of the new deal, the first one that basically saved our goddamn country, (laughs) Then learn about what it was really about because mm-hmm. everybody thought that it was going to be socialism to have a safety net for elderly Americans. And now that's one of the most popular things. Social security is one of the most popular uh, governmental programs yeah. because we all know that a 25 year old like me, a 22 year old, you got it like you has significant advantages in the workplace than people in their 60s and 70s who still need some level of income to survive. Actually, I just had a little thought about income, and I, so I, another false ending here. But let me just let me just <laughs> let me just say this: it's troubling to me that the exact same resource, you know, Federal Reserve notes, whatever U.S. currency, the dollar, is used for for the things that are extravagant and unimportant, like a gold toilet, and for fundamental human survival, like rent. Mm-hmm. like food um you know what you need to sleep all medication you know that's just it's it's not something where i know what the answer is because you know in a system with any kind of markets you're going to have a currency but how did we get to a point especially when you walk around eugene and you see um, that we have people struggling in Eugene and living on the streets. Some people aren't struggling and they're living on the streets, but we have a lot of people from all over who come to Eugene to be a part of a community who are who are possibly disabled, possibly have un- untreated mental health issues, possibly just believe in the idea of. I know you support communal living, or and you and or, or you 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 have a lot more knowledge about communal living than I do that we didn't get to talk about. Maybe I'll get you back on sometime. Um, and it's just fundamentally not moral. The situation we have, we have reached where, where three people own more wealth than 50% of the country. Mm -hmm. And I just don't, I literally don't know how those people sleep at night. Yeah. I don't know how. I I think I mentioned, uh, probably on on talks with tiger tiger's podcast that mm-hmm. i do have a deal with some of my friends from college that if yeah. i ever become a billionaire they have full permission to uh kill me oh um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah you didn't say that <laughs> because i i do think that you know, it's unethical to be a billionaire you know um and and i'm like, not with you there a billion is too small for me to say that but it's also massive. It's thousand, also massive. You know, a thousand millionaires is is they have a lot of money. But you know, a trillion. I'm at. I'm with you at a trillion. I'm with you at no indi- no individual should have a trillion dollars. Sorry, trillionaires out there watching my show. 
<laughs> but but a billion. I mean, what can you do with a billion? Can you can you make an airline company? Probably not. I want to make an airline probably co- with right? a billion. Yeah, but not like not like not like a very big competitive one. Not at all the major airports. Um, I I would I wouldn't mind having a billion dollars one day. I'll be honest with you. I'm but, a capitalist. But I think I think if you have a billion dollars, I, I believe in incentives. I think if you have a billion dollars, um, then and I think it could be ethical to be a billionaire if everybody has basic human needs there you satisfied. Go. But as, as of right a now, universal basic income like Thomas Paine and Martin Luther King Jr. and even Milton Friedman support. Yeah, I mean, you can tell I watch Yang videos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think I think it's I just, one of those things. that's like as of this moment, I think it's yeah. unethical to be a billionaire. It's that, possible. Yeah, that, in context, in yeah. context. Um, yeah. Gosh, what was I just gonna say about that? It's just, it's just like, I, okay, I believe in a much higher marginal tax rate. Like people have this. People are so good at smearing. The idea of a marginal tax rate to say 70% of all your money is being taken. No. 70% of everything above a certain threshold is taken. Mm-hmm. 30% of everything you're making once you're that rich is also already a lot of fucking money. And you keep the fir- you keep everything from the first and that particular tax from that tax you keep everything on your first like I don't know. I literally don't know. I'm talking about the the rate that AOC proposed of 70% a while back and yeah, people like Bill Burr, who I admire, saying, you know, you don't get that money. You don't get you don't get my money. Seventy uh, percent of my money. It's like, no, it's not 70 percent of your money. It's 70 percent of the top money from these people that have more money than they know what to do with many, many of the times. So if you look at, you know, between the 1940s, 1970s, roughly, we just had we had a better progressive tax system mm-hmm. like. OK. Real quick, and then I'll I'll say something about coal miners, and then I'll abruptly sign off. Um, the tax system, I missed it. Uh, what was it? Anyone listening now? They 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 get it. They get that I'm burnt out and whatever. I'm not an idiot. I just totally blanked on that tax thing. Oh, we have these progressive candidates who are finding good ways to get at that revenue because the wealthy who have controlled everything through lobbying and through just literally being the people in power have basically made it so they keep much of their money whether in ox- offshore tax havens or just you know they don't pay the the taxes they don't pay income tax for their companies so you've got a wealth tax that Warren is proposing and Bernie and Bernie and you've got a like a value added tax that Yang is proposing for sites like Amazon and Google and Facebook that you he wants to give a little bit of every he says robot truck mile or every every ad that you watch on Facebook or every sale that happens on Amazon where value is added to that that transaction by one person's participation um, you know part of that money would go then go to the government so because Amazon for anybody who doesn't know paid zero in federal income tax last year mm-hmm. even though they are honestly god I just I don't I, I hate to be a plagiarist but this is the exact phrase he uses. They're sucking up money from the entire retail industry and closing about 30% of American malls and stores. Yeah. <sighs> Fundamentally, if we have this place where government goes so far off the rails of morality, then what is the point of having government at all? Here's the coal miner thing. I saw a great meme on the internet, 
and it was it, all it said was if you think that coal that sex workers sell their bodies but coal miners don't then there's a problem in your ethics because sex workers don't sell their bodies they temper they sell a time and a service to people coal miners sell their time and a service but they and I'm not saying this, okay, I actually both have a little bit of, um, like, you can walk away with having some collateral damage. Let's say if there's a, there's, an, uh, there's a violent situation that a sex worker experiences. But coal miners end up with immense respiratory problems. Mm-hmm. And they're both things that are, I don't know if I'd say admirable, because I don't believe in the, in, in the coal mining industry anymore. But I want to find a way to make a distinction. Here it is. Here's a way to wrap up my previous point. Social media promotes brevity, but brevity leads leads to oversimplification. And I want to have long form discussions like you and I are having right now, where hopefully you can open up a little more and say, "Yes, I hate the coal mining industry. However, I benefit greatly from my laptop being on right now, and our, I get." energy from a grid maybe part of that comes from coal mining and however the people participating might not have much of a choice yeah and if that's if you're in appalachian america and that's the thing that your grandpa did and your father did and it's the only good job you can get in your community while manufacturing jobs are getting shot off to different countries then we need to find ways to promote you getting a job that helps us have energy and sustainability. Yeah. And you'll have pride in the work that you're doing because mm-hmm. I believe in hard work and these people who do those jobs are really hard workers in terms of manual labor. I'm kind of not that. I like hard work in terms of writing and thinking, but I don't I would never be a coal miner. I mm-hmm. just wouldn't. Cool. Well, thanks, Ty. I look forward to having you on again sometime in the future. Thank you. If you like the podcast, subscribe or whatever on the YouTubes. Uh, and then if you like me, hugh.2020.org, check out what we're going to do to build a stronger Eugene together and possibly donate $2 a month if you can. Thank you very much. Peace.